Hello everybody, it's Dr. Rick dropping in on you and we are about to close out the series, the weekly series, kind of rolled around a little bit in it on multi-generational transmission of trauma. We are not finished with trauma by a long shot, uh, but I don't want to over inundate on one particular thing because it gets boring because we're talking about some significant things, not a lot of sensationalism, not a lot of entertainment in it, so I'm trying to keep it. Uh, a series enough to give you some serious insight and then roll you to something else and then we're going to come back and we're going to revisit these things in a systematic way. Uh, as you saw at the beginning of this video, we are in the middle of a fundraiser. If you believe in the work we're doing, everything from our research uh, center to our think tank to program implementation, uh, program development, program implementation, wraparound services, and so much more. It all comes from the research starting with the research that allows me to present a work like this which is the undoing of the african-american mind uh, the subtopic is an introduction into collective uh, cognitive bias reality uh, syndrome which is a theory of mind that i'm going to explain in a little bit but if you believe in the work we're doing which is so uh, paramount to uh, the healing and preparation and empowerment of blacks uh, moving forward show some love social support and look in the description box and determine which way you want to give and give okay so we're going to close out trauma and also segue into next week's series the disintegration of the black family nucleus um so um the undoing of the african-american mind is um my 23rd book uh, it is a book that was meant to be the sequel to Born in Captivity, which was my 19th book. And it explains a lot of the behavior that we have literally adopted as culture. Um, Born in Captivity subtitle was Psychopathology as a Legacy of Slavery. There are certain behaviors, ideas, and uh, instinctive uh, impulses that come out of that type of trauma, that type of elongated, persistent and uh, persistent trauma. And the, the fact that we're also dealing with simultaneously complex trauma, trauma stacked on top of trauma, uh, and then traumatic re-injury where we're reliving the same type of trauma. All of these things, very rarely are you going to have that. Any person outside of the black community dealing with all of these simultaneously, but we do. And it creates this collective bias this collective idea of our reality that is distorted, but it is distorted by our experiences. It's distorted by the narratives fed to us. It's distorted by an unsolidified identity. We are in, in a, an identity crisis, and all of these things play a role. And what I'm going to talk about today is how the disruption and disintegration of the black family nucleus, which was purpose, purposefully orchestrated, has lended to this uh, distorted view, this distorted reality, and some things that we need to do uh, in order to move around it. But this is just the beginning. We're gonna, it's gonna sort of segue out of uh, multi-generational trauma with the focus and center being on tra traumatic injury and focus primarily on the family. Uh, but I'm gonna read you two little short segments out of the book. Um, and the actual type, this is from chapter four. <clears throat> uh, and it's entitled The Destruction of the Black Family Nucleus in America. 
Um, I'm not going to read the whole paragraph. Uh, <laughs> definitely not going to read the whole chapter. This book is pretty comprehensive. I'm going to read a total of two paragraphs. Uh, they're not linear, in meaning they're not back-to-back -back paragraphs. They're one, and then I'm going to skip a little bit and give you another one, just to kind of close out the idea. It says, when dealing with the enigmatic issues that are currently plaguing blacks in America, it is important to identify the most pernicious issues and work outward from there. There is no denying that the lack of economic mobility is an immense problem for the black collective. And the miseducation of black youth is also substan a substantial issue that deserves a certain amount of attention. The struggles with consumerism and individualism also play an integral role in the progressive demise of the black collective. However, it is my assertion that the disintegration of the black family nucleus is the single most destructive element that directly impacts the quest for progression in the black community. I also assert that the current state of the black family is a direct result of cognitive distortions that can be directly linked to the system, systematic oppression and social engineering at the hands of an opposing system of power. The destruction of the black family nucleus is not the result of chaos as it may seem, but it is the direct consequence of systematic annihilation. Then uh, move over a little bit and says the black family is the core institution where thought patterns and key ideas are developed and nurtured. When the family is under constant duress, it is possible for it to lose its ability to positively influence the thoughts processes, thought processes of those who exist within its structure or worse negatively impact those within its authoritative structure. The destruction of the black family further exacerbates the lack of direct positive influence which is so vital for setting the course of uh, the lives of our black youth, the future of our race. So, in essence, what am I saying? I'm saying that the things that hold any group together are going to be what is often referred to uh, in our circle as VIPs, values, interests, and principles. The values, interests, and principles of any family is the core values that hold that family together. That's why in the in the eastern is still in eastern cultures today and definitely historically in cultures with, even within Africa you had a lot of uh, you had a lot of arranged marriages why you were taking one family with a certain set of values interests and principles and another family with like values interests and principles and saying in order to perpetuate our values and our interests and principles into society and into the future and protect our lineage we're going to bring two like-minded children together let them grow up together and then marry them and while it is a foreign idea in the u.s it's something that had a purpose and it was effective in doing so and even in a situation where here in america we get to choose our spouses nobody chooses them for generally speaking and it, should, it still should be someone saying, okay, I hold these values, interests, and principles. These are the core instruments of what I am going to do and how I'm going to live my life and how I want my children to grow up so that they are best prepared to go out into a world that's inherently hostile towards them and not only compete, but win. That is the core definition of education. First of all, I'm going to educate you on your identity. I'm going to give you a sense of self. 
before you ever leave this house, before you ever encounter any type of negative influence, negative force, negative narrative, negative idea of who you are, you will know who you are so that when you enter this, you're not shaken by it. You're not pushed back. You expect it, but you reject it. And that is something that's not happening with our children. One of the reasons I created Black Men Lead, one of the reasons that Marion does Restoring Ghetto's Forgotten Daughters. Why? Because it is immensely important for us to be able to sit up and teach our children who they are. Identity is, is key. And we have an entire collective that's living in this biased reality where white is what? Right. We're living in this reality where there's a Eurocentric idea that governs how we see ourselves, how we operate, and what we think is best. A Eurocentric idea of beauty, a Eurocentric idea of what's professional, a Eurocentric idea of what's classy, a Eurocentric idea of what was successful, what success, how, how do you define success? And what happens is there is an Afrocentric spirit, an Afrocentric genetic code an Afrocentric identity rooted in us at a level that even supersedes or transcends the subconscious. So even subconsciously, we're operating and we're trying to live at a certain, uh, live by a certain code, certain standards, certain values, interests, and principles, principles that don't serve us. They don't serve us because they are not for us. But when you attack the family, when you break apart the family, you break apart the very core structure of uh, uh, of the ability to properly socialize any group, any race, it starts in the family, it starts in the home. You take masculine energy from the uh, father, you take feminine energy from the mother, each has unique skills, unique natural inherent influence within the family, within the household. You have a set of family values that's uh, inculcated in numerous ways through speech, through talk, through social learning theory, through modeling and behavior and constant observation and practice. And so what happens is these children sit up and say, okay, when this happens, this is what's going on. This is what we do with money. We are supposed to own businesses. We're supposed to control our own financial destiny. We're supposed to educate children, our children in the home first and then seek the best possible educational opportunities for them based off of their gifting and not what someone else says is best for them. Because their gift is what? What makes room for them, right? Okay, so what happens is when you break down the family, you have m multiple institutions in, the, in this world. I, I identify four prominent institutions in the world that govern and control how the world operates on a grand scale. The individual is actually an institution within themselves. Why? Because they have sovereign, uh, the sovereign ability to choose how they're going to live their lives. They determine what they're going to learn, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's fair, what's not fair. In their mindset, they scope that. Now, obviously, they're going to be influenced by the family that they grew up into. So the next institution is actually marriage. Marriage is the foundation for the family. It's hard to have a true foundation without there being two core sources that ensure that there's both masculine and feminine energy in the home that the masculine and feminine energy sinks together, creating a synergy, which is a supernatural force that's able to do both, that's able to do more than either one of them can do individually. That's what becoming one is about. And I'm not talking on a religious level, I'm talking on a spiritual level. 
And that's what we're missing. There are certain things that she brings to the table that he simply does not have. There are certain things he brings to the table she simply does not have. And when the merging of that comes together, you have some things that you cannot have otherwise that those on the outside are aware of. The one thing we don't want is a family because no matter how much we oppress them, when the family nucleus together, they still find a way to thrive. They understood this. They learned this. They studied this. That's why in the 60s they started to uh, make moves to create space between the black man and the black woman. Now we participated, we both have some culpability and that's some things that we all need to work on. Those are things that I also highlight in this book and others. This isn't about placing blame on anybody. This is sitting up saying, look, look what's going on around us and look how we're responding to it. The disintegration of the family said, hey, now our children can't really get a solid identity because parents don't even know who they are. Most of our children are dealing with adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, meaning that they're dealing with division, mom and dad's not together, one of both parents incarcerated, one of both parents addicted to a controlled substance, especially alcohol, uh, negligent abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all of these things are ACEs. All you need is three or four of these in your entire health outcome over life is drastically changed. So now we're talking about epigenetic influences, but all of that could have been mitigated and managed at the beginning when the child is born. If the child is born into a positive environment, a loving environment, a caring environment, an uplifting environment, a balanced environment, a balanced environment, then that child grows up with a safe a feeling of security and safety and what happens number one is they're not triggered constantly with fight or flight they don't live in a state where they're constantly afraid of when the next thing is going to jump off that's messing with their neuro, uh, neurological makeup that's in their nervous system that's making them hyper vigilant uh, and ultimately with men it ultimately ends up leading to hyper violence uh, and it shows up in a number of different ways in the female sector. So then what are we supposed to do? We have to be aware of the fact that there's a nefarious force at play that vies to keep distance and separation, animosity, um, and uh, just contention between the black man and the black woman because when the black man and the black woman find the same page, find the same connectivity, start to understand that we are not the same but we have unique uh, capacities that when joined together create unbelievable forces. It's so immensely important for them to keep us thinking, I don't need her. Or to think less of her. Or to think because I've got the bag, whatever that is defined at in whatever space you're in, I can do what I want to do. So now what we have is a bunch of men trying to get the bag because we've been told that if you have the bag, you're a high value man. Forget how you treat your woman, how you treat your kids, how you sow into your children, how you sow into your kids, how you speak to your woman, handle your woman. Something that I learned and I believe to the core of my being that you can judge the character of a man by the continence of his woman. You can judge the character of a man by the expressive living and presence of his woman. If you want to know what type of man he is, look at how his woman represents him. Now, for that to be true, she has to be whole. 
she has to be healed. She has to have gone through this healing process or she will reflect her trauma before she reflects her husband. And one of the things is we're not healing. And so there's a problem in that as well. This is why we're merging family and trauma because there's a problem. And what they're doing is they're using our trauma to trigger us against the very ones who can come in and settle us and give us the space. It's going to be hard for me to find my peace without a woman who can create an environment for me to be peaceful in. There's just certain parts of her spirit that settle me when she is healed. There's a level of security that a woman cannot create for herself without the presence of a man. I don't care how many gats she has in her purse. I don't care how many self-defense classes she takes. There's a level of security and safety when there is a man in your space that you know will go to the mat for you and do anything to make sure that you're safe and secure. It just simply is. It was designed universally and eternally to be that way. It's when there is this animosity present because now I'm not living out of my purpose. I'm living out of my trauma. And because I'm living out of my trauma, I am viewing everything through the lens of my trauma and I'm judging everybody on the lens of my trauma. So I don't see her through what she is uh, uh, giving her permission to be human, not per not perfect, human, not giving her, that's not a pass to be bad, to be evil, to be mean, to be disrespectful and all the things that weigh heavily on a man is to sit up and say that I need to let her be the best version of her. And by doing that, is I do that by being the best version of myself. So my job isn't to control her. My job is to be the best version of me and let her respond to me. That's a problem for me. Now here on the flip side, women, it's not your job to manipulate him. It's not your job to tell him how to do what he's supposed to do for you. It's not your job to sit up and look beyond his, his desire, his love, and his commitment to you to see his infallibilities and praise him as a bell on his head and ring him every time you feel like making him move, jump, or operate. Manipulation is a gift you have, but it has never served you well. For those of you who have Christian faith, it started with Eve. And if you go and you read uh, the book of Genesis after the fall, it says, her, and her desire shall be for him. It's not that she's desiring, it's her desire shall be to control. And this is why when you get to Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 22 through 33, the woman is told to submit. It's not an act of subservience. It's stop trying to control him. Understanding it in the original Greek is stop trying to control him. And it's and, and it's explained at the end in verse 33 for those who like to use it and misquote it and misapply it. It says, husbands love your wives and wives respect your husband. There's nothing a man desires more than respect. If you want to break a man, anger a man, drive a man away, be disrespectful. When I was writing When Your House Is Not a Home, which is my fourth book, uh, I did a lot of research. I interviewed couples from every culture, every race, every age group, uh, different nationalities, Eastern uh, countries, Arab countries, uh, African uh, descendants, and then people here in the U.S. And uh, one of the studies I came across was a study of 4,000 men, and they asked them a number of different questions. One of the questions that were asked of the men were, if you had... Uh, a choice of living with someone you knew cared about you but had a tendency to behave in ways that were disrespectful but in every other way care for you loved you gave you everything else but just tended to talk to you in a way that rubbed you raw constantly or just you knew it was coming versus 
living the rest of your life isolated on the island. 80 freaking percent of those men said they would rather be alone than to live in a situation where they knew they were loved but felt disrespected. Me personally, I don't think you can really truly love a person and be disrespectful. Except for what? When you're broken. When you're broken, you act out of your trauma. When you're broken, you act from this lack of healing. And one of the problems I think that we all have, and I'll say that I've been guilty of it, is this convincing ourselves that we've healed because it sounds strong, because it's the right thing to say, because it's the right thing to do. But then we carry our brokenness into situations and we behave in ways that we look up and we go, whoa. You know, and and, and, and so you have these things. And I know that, the, uh, man, way back, it's been a while, 30 years, 20, whatever, 20 something years. Uh, but I can look back and situation looking at it now saying, man, if I'd have just stuck with it, it would have worked. There wasn't anything really wrong. I just had just come out of a very traumatic situation. So I was judging everything based on that situation. And, and I wasn't having no tolerance for nothing. I'm out. You know, and so that was being that was judged through, through trauma. My pain wouldn't allow me to let her be human and then work with it. Now, I'm not saying you let anybody disrespect you. I'm not saying you let anybody abuse you. I'm not saying that you let anybody handle you wrong. What I'm saying is a lot of the things that we're saying we're not willing to accept is because we're viewing them through a lens of either trauma or distorted lens by a narrative written that's designed to keep you away from the one who can empower you. See, that's another thing that a, a, a man does. The, the five P's of manhood. Now, we teach 11 principles of manhood and black men lead our rite of passage initiative. We teach 11 principles. But there are five P's of manhood that I communicate with my guys. And I'm talking about my dudes, my homeboys, uh, and how we carry ourselves. The first one is the first P is pr pr uh, protector. Everybody loves to talk about can he provide? Can he pay the bills? Can he pay the bills? Can he pay the bills? Any man that loves you, any man that desires to have you in his life, will bust his ass to cover that financial part. Sometimes he's going to be on his game and it's going to be sweet. Sometimes it may get a little scary. Sometimes he may even say, can you help me for a minute till I get this figured out? And you have to understand what, 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 what that means also within the capacity of the confines or the constructs of the social environment. Black men have a median income of 44000 Black women have a median income of over 42000 What that means is black, the black race is the only place where the woman is almost equal in earning in earning capacity as the man. And then when you move up in higher ranges where you start to get to certain incomes, there are more black women than there are black men. Why? Well, they're going to give a fluidity to the one that they don't want to, the one that they're okay with having the power because if the black man is left impotent, if the black man is emasculated, I don't care how powerful the black woman becomes, the black race doesn't move. I've said this before. 
that we will only get as high as our black women can spiritually lift us, but we will only get as far as our black men can physically lead us. We are visual by nature. This is in any species or any race, but definitely in the black race, we are by nature men visual. Women are by nature intuitive. They feel we see. We see in both physical and spiritual. They feel in both physical and spiritual. We see the power and even the, 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 the uh, future potential in them. When your man is truly on his game, he doesn't just see his vision. He sees yours. He doesn't just see his potential. He sees yours. He doesn't just see the potential of his children. I mean, of himself, he sees the children too. And that's what makes him what? A prophet, which is the fifth P. And the prophet isn't because he can predict the future. The prophet is because he speaks into the lives of those he's been given the responsibility of covering. So then you have a protector. Before, and I tell people all the time, before a male is mentally and emotionally prepared to be a provider in the total sense, he is already prepared to be a protector. He will be physically, and, and we teach this to our boys and black men lead. We tell them that, so, and I always, when I'm teaching, I always use the analogy of, uh, uh, of twins, uh, fraternal twins. And I say, okay, say for instance, you've got a twin sister. You guys are born the same day and you grew up. First few years, you guys are going to pretty much be the same size. You know, you get up, you start getting around five, six, or seven. Y'all probably be equal in strength. She may race you and beat you. She may even be able to beat you up in a fight or a wrestling match. But around nine or 10, 11, some things start to change. You start to go through puberty. And when you start to go through puberty, you start to produce a hormone known as testosterone. That testosterone will do several things for you. The first thing it's going to do is going to start to change your voice. It's going to first get squeaky and real weird, and then it's going to start to deepen. That's a reflection. That's your first line of defense as a man is that deep voice. roar is more powerful and deeper than the female's line female line the deep voice is the first line of defense that's the first sign that hey i'm dealing with the male species the natural defender the natural protector and if he's speaking to me he's giving me a warning about infringing and and and, and becoming a threat to anything within his periphery so I tell them, I say, now, now the testosterone is going to deepen your voice, but it's also going to make you bigger and stronger than she is. She can no longer beat you running. She can no longer beat you wrestling or fighting. She is now significantly weaker than you the older you get. Now, this isn't meant for you to turn on her and pay her back for all the time she beat you. This is meant for you to step into the responsibility of protecting her. It's the natural order. It's the divine order. It's how you operate and start the process of becoming a man. And so you protect her. Now, here's the other thing that testosterone does. It makes you a little more aggressive, a little more edgy. You're a little bit more willing to mix it up if something pop off. You, 
it's to make sure that you're not only physically prepared, but mentally and emotionally willing to defend her. Now, that's when you rear it properly. You have the right values. You have, the right, you have learned the number one principle of manhood is what? A man, a black man never causes harm to a black female, ever. And that, so that is instilled in you from a little kid. So you understand if I'm never causing harm, my job is to protect. I am never the source of her pain. That doesn't mean you don't say something you have to apologize for. It means that your desire for your woman, your and it's not just your woman, it's your daughters, it's your sisters, it's the women in your periphery. Look, there should be no place safer for the black woman than in the presence of the black man. But here's another thing. That's the first P. The second P is the one everybody loves, provider. He's got to be provider. But see, it's more than just money that he needs to be providing. He needs to provide environment. He needs to provide encouragement. He needs to provide a sense of vision. He needs to provide a sense of safety and awareness of where I'm going to be in five years. He is the provider of those things. It's his responsibility to be that. And it's his responsibility to effectively communicate that. And then the third P is what? Promoter. And he was like, what does that mean? He doesn't big up himself. He bigs up. He big ups the people in his house. He talks about how awesome his wife is. He talks about what she's great at. He talks about how awesome she is. He fills her in on it. He tells everybody when something comes up, he said, my wife would be great for that. Let me give her a call. Here's her number. Give her a call. He's, he does it with his kids. Hey, you're going to be great at this, man. You ever seen my son? My son does this. My daughter is great at this. My, and, and what he's doing, he's promoting and creating spaces for those that he is responsible for covering. See, the role of the father in America has been diminished so much because they don't want any fathers, especially black fathers, but any father, to really truly step into it because you start to see the inability for the system to control the masses because the power and the force and the identity and the vision comes through the men. If we can make them docile, if we can feminize them, if we can emasculate them, we can keep them at bay. But what does the real, real man says? No, you, you can do more than that. The teacher said, what? No, you can do this. You can do that. Then I'm going up there and talk to the teacher. Don't you ever tell my child what they can't do. Don't you ever tell my child that doesn't fit for you. My child says that's their dream. If you can't believe in it, just shut up. You, you it, See, that's what the man does. See, that's the third P. The fourth P is the priest. Now, I don't mean that in a historically religious way. I mean that in a historically powerful and divine way. The priest is the direct connectivity between God and, and all that is connected to the priest or comes to the priest. And so that's why you have in Catholicism, the universal church, Priests still act as the go-to to God. That's why Catholics go to confession. They tell it to the priest. The priest takes it before God and gives them absolution for it, for it. And then they go about their way. They, you know, that's that's their way of doing it. That's sort of similar to the way the priest in Israel did it. They went before the altar. The Levitical priesthood went before the altar and carried the sins of Israel before God and then cast out the sins of Israel through the scapegoat in the wilderness. But then um, Martin Luther came along and wrote his thesis on grace 
and determined that grace provided a direct access to God. Therefore, man didn't have to go. So then you got the Protestants that say we don't need a priest. But in priesthood, whether you're talking about African spiritualism, see, priesthood doesn't just exist in the universal Catholic Church. You're talking about priesthood and African spiritualism. You're talking about priesthood. And the priest is the direct line. It's divine. Nobody's going to outpray a black woman. First of all, let me get that straight. Nobody's outpraying a black woman. This isn't about outpraying your wife. It's about having a direct line to God that gives you the vision, that gives you the revelation, that gives you the answers to be everything that your wife is praying for, that you can produce it. So he's a priest. That's the fourth P, the fifth P I sort of mentioned already, he's the prophet. And he, that, that means he's speaking into the lives of the people that he covers. Starting with his wife. You're beautiful. You're awesome. Yes, baby, you got this. Yes, you can do this. Don't worry about that. You got it. You are awesome. You're going to do great. Let me know if you need some help. You're going to be great. Going to the kids. Boy, you're going to have an awesome day at school today. You're going to do great in this. You're going to do great in that. Whatever you believe you can do. All these different things. He is literally speaking into their lives because he understands the power of where that's power of what? Life and death in the tongue. Speak life. He's not just asking them to do it. He's doing it for them. He's teaching them the words that they're going to practice in their minds over and over again. His wife is going to leave in the car hearing the last thing coming from a loving voice that has the power of the deepness provided by nature and divine origin to sit up and say, hey, that's the most powerful force in the home. Just told me I can do anything I want to do. Now I'm about to take my spiritual power, my spiritual woman, go birth some stuff. This is the power that we're missing in the home because we have this collective cognitive bias reality syndrome working against us. They told us that we don't have power. They told us we're intellectually inferior. They told us that poverty is our lot in life. They told us that we should just be happy taking the crumbs from the table. They told us that white is right. They told us that their ice was colder. They told us a whole bunch of things that don't have any true historical relevance, validation, or proof, but we buy into it. Why? Because we want to operate in a system. They pushed us back and treated us so badly and for so long that it became a desire to be accepted. And that's our natural spirit. We are naturally more driven to relationship than they are. That's why before 30 years ago, you would hardly ever see a black parent in a nursing home. We are built to be connected. That's why it's hard to get two black men who don't like each other to work together. You get two white men who don't care about each other, who can't stand each other, but they have a project that they have to do in order to put money in the bank account. Guess what? They get together, they do that work, they go home and they talk about that dude like a dog to their wife. I can't stand that. Oh man, he's getting on my last nerves, honey. But when he gets to work, what do we do today, Tom? Let's go do it. And, 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 and they get it done. You put two black men and one find out the other one don't like them, and you forcing them to be in that space, they're going to pop off. Some hands are going to be thrown because we are built on relationship. We need to be liked. It's our nature. We're built that way. We're built in relational environment. That's why we don't understand why they do what they do to us. Because, man, we're just going to show them, man. Look what you're doing here. See, you've been doing this for this. We wrote how many thousands of books on what they've done. Hell, I got 26 by my damn self. So 
I've lectured, I don't know how many times, I don't know how many interviews I've done. And a lot of the times they're at these places I'm doing these interviews at. And they know, then they got a bunch of people that are doing it on uh, for, for them, that look like them, that are telling them, hey, there's some messed up stuff going on right here. They know they're not built like, they're built to burn whatever they can't have, to destroy whatever they can't have, to manipulate and take. Look at the histories. They've been moving in, infringing on other people's spaces and taking it from day one. What do you think all the way back to the Chaldean Empire moving in on Israel and the Persian Empire moving in on the Chaldean Empire in Babylon and the Greeks on the Persians and the Romans on the Greeks and the Germans and on all of these things. And now we have a country that's in everybody's damn business because that's the way they think. Now, don't get me wrong. There's been a lot of tribal stuff going on in Africa. And we need to understand the history of that. And in, in, in our need to understand it, I don't think we should over glorify it as if it wasn't things that went on. We're talking about human nature. We're talking about a bunch of different things. We're talking about borders, boundaries, and tribalism. It happened. The transatlantic slave trade was partly a result of tribalism. But it was tribalism exploited by European infringement or encroachment. That tribalism would have been settled within Africa if it, the means wouldn't have been presented and the opportunity presented to get rid of your problem this way. Not again making any excuses for some of the things that are going on. It's life. It's history. We need to understand it so that we don't repeat it. But hey, back to this thing with family. The woman plays an immense role. And I think one of the biggest problems we have as men is we tend to want to diminish them or make them some way second class. And we do that because we're measuring them against who we are and what we are. But they're not men. They're not meant to do what we do. So you have to look at them and say, what are their strengths? What are they? What, what's their design? What's their purpose in the family, in the home, in the marriage? What are they meant to do? What are they designed to do? What can I facilitate with my masculinity to ensure she's in her femininity? Now, the one thing that can't happen is you can't have competing states. You can't have a woman operating in her masculinity and she can conjure it up. You can't have her operating in it and expecting to facilitate a real true relationship with a true masculine man. Now, she can get a beta man or a man that is not operating in his total masculinity, but he's going to need her to lead. He's going to ask her, what should we do? Instead of saying, hey, this is what we're going to do and have her and, and do it with enough confidence that she trusts him. And a lot of people say, well, what if you can't trust him? See, that goes to another thing that we don't have right because we're operating out of our trauma. We don't choose right. When you choose right, you don't have to ask that question. Finally, one of the things that we lose in this 
is the notion of building. We don't want to build anything. We want to inherit it. We want it to show up ready, ready to roll. We want the, the women want a six figure dude with everything going on, show up, rescue them out of their mess. You living um, in poverty, you want the knight in shining armor to ride in and rescue you out of that and then partake of what he has and be treated as an equal. He came along and rescued you. And so he, in his mind, because we're already in a culture that glorifies the bad, has come along and provided to you the very thing that makes him supernatural in his mindset, because that's what he's been told in this culture. He's got the bag. So he's high value. He came along and took you out of a low value situation. And he's going to ask that question women absolutely hate. What do you bring to the table to be demanding this of me? And the problem is you didn't build it with him. I tell women all the time, be very careful, especially you start talking about men over 30, men over 40. When you walk in and a man has everything set up, especially a home, even if he bought that home by himself, I guarantee you the thing that he built, the structure he built it on, some woman has something to do with it. You're inheriting someone else's work. Be very careful about that. I, um, uh, when Mary and I were still together, she had this client and he was with his second wife. His first wife passed away. When he met this woman, he sold his house and bought a new one to move her into. Now, he had the ability and the capacity to do that. What was he doing? He was saying, hey, somebody else helped me build that. I don't ever want that going through my mind when we have impasses that this ain't your house anyway. So even though I'm buying the house and you, you, I'm moving you into it, it's ours. And that's another thing, man, we've got to understand is that if we're going to ask them to operate in the trueness of their femininity, and I'm never going to tell a woman what she should do because I'm going to back her vision. And I don't mind if she's riding alongside of me and we're doing things together. We're out there doing things together. I'm going to support if that's what she wants to do. Now, if she wants to be at home and be a stay home, take her home mom, you need to see the value in that. And you need to give her partnership because she's raising your seed. She's nurturing and she is the one that's going to be the first educator of your seed. You're going to be the source of identity, but she's going to be the educator of your seed. She's equal, just different. And then if she's out there banging and doing all this here, then if she's out there and she's bringing money into the home that is being applied to the cost of living in home, now she's just out there making her own money. That's a little different. But if she's bringing money home and she's contributing, and sometimes we got to be honest with ourselves, especially at the beginning, that may be necessary. Again, the median income for the average black, the median the income for black men is 44,000. The median income for women is 42. It's a lot of talk on social media, one of the stupidest conversations I've ever heard. Does he, can he, does he play all the bills? If we're going to be honest with ourselves, if the median income of black men is 44,000, how many motherfuckers out there actually playing all the bills? Let's be honest. And then all the women that want the man that can afford it, 6% of black men make six figures. So all these cats out here talking about it, and and all that, you know, I'm telling you from the research I do to understand this, you got to think I just wrote book number 25, which was The War on Black Wealth, Breaking the Code of Generational Wealth. So I know the numbers. That's why I can easily call them off to you. 
6% of black men make six figures. And you got to think, out of that six figures, you're talking about a bunch of those guys are athletes. And then you got lawyers, uh, lawyers, agents, uh, you know, business owners. And, here, and here's, the, here's the thing. So then, if that's the case, we've got to be kind of honest about how we're going to approach this. Now, I'm all for having a man that can do it all. But are you going to provide the environment for him? Are you going to provide the support for him? Or are you going to sit up and say, I see your dream. I see your vision. I'm going to get behind you. Tell me how to best support you so that you can get us where I believe we can be and where you promised me. See, that's a discussion you have when you meet someone. What's your vision? I tell women all the time, stop asking him what he drives. Stop asking him where he works. That job, it may just be a stop for him. That job may be the best he ever does. So instead of asking him, where does he work? Ask him what his vision is. Ask him what the vision he has for his life is. And he should be able to articulate it very easily, very succinctly, but very powerfully. You should be able to see the passion and the commitment to it. And you should be able to say, okay, does my vision, does my gifting, does how I move and think mesh with what he's doing? A lot of us want to look past that. Why? Because he's fine. A lot of y'all want to look past that. Man, he got the nice whip. He's doing this. We can go on some vacations. I can do some things I ain't did in a while. He can help me out with these kids. Blah, blah, blah. And then it blows up. He comes in. You get two more kids on top of the kids you have. Then it don't work. He's gone. Now, he's got kids. And it probably wasn't his first set of kids. So now he's got kids in multiple homes. Impacting wealth. You got kids and you're trying to do everything as a single parent now. And this isn't uh, pointing the finger of blame. It's culpability all around. See, he needs to know who he is so that he recognizes his queen when she shows up. She needs to know who she is so she recognizes his covering and the capacity to mesh with him so that she can open her spiritual womb. Because let me tell you something, guys. We have the vision. We see it. We can go after it. We have the unbelievable force to move toward it and to accumulate and grab a lot of things. But there are certain things that require spiritual impetus that only comes out of her spiritual womb. That's why, again, there's the need for the um, feminine energy and the masculine energy. But we've been duped. I don't need a man. Man, screw that. I ain't getting married. I'm going to do this, this, is, and whenever I want this. And then because you got the bag, you ain't. It, don't have the bag. And the body. Because you ain't worried about. you getting everything you want when you want it, how you want it. And nobody is demanding anything more than you just to spend some time with you have. You pay for a few things, which you can easily do. And then you are missing out on becoming what you're capable of becoming. Because they've lowered the standard. And they provided you with all of the appearances of really truly having something. And you don't realize you don't have nothing until you get into life. And some of these things start to not mean as much to you. And then you start to realize, wait a minute, something's missing. And now you're trying to find it. Now you're trying to build it. And let me tell you something. It's not easy trying to catch up later in life. You need to sit down. And, but how do we stop that? How do we stop broken men from in their 30s and 40s still playing games? Women in their 30s and 40s still doing off-the-wall stuff that's driving men away. It's pretending that they don't need men when the very nature of life says we both need each other. But how do we stop that? We stop it by putting an emphasis on restoring the black family because that's, the number one, the institution, the individual is an institution. 
the marriage is an institution. On the marriage, you build the family. On the family, you set the course and destiny of your people by inculcating the right values, interests, and principles into the young children at an age when they're still in theta. Theta is a stage where children are downloading all the data and stimuli and information they're encountering, and it's, the, and it's constructing what we call a paradigm. This paradigm is going to be the lens through which they view life. It's going to be the thing that tells them what they can do, what they can't do, what they're supposed to do, how they carry themselves in certain situations, how they present themselves in public, how they do a I mean, everything under the sun is within this paradigm. But you create the paradigm early in life when they're downloading. That's why you never let anybody around your kids that's going to tell them what they can't do. That's why you never let anyone around your kids that's going to sit up and say, all you'll ever be is this. You don't let anybody around your kids that's going to malign who they naturally are, their blackness, their facial structure, whatever is natural, whatever they're going to become. You don't let anything like that around your kid. Why? Because they're downloading the things that are going to govern their self-image, their self-esteem, and their self-confidence. So then we have to understand the importance of operating together. And that the only people who benefit from this animosity that we built towards one another are the ones who benefit from our suffering. And they are, in essence, pushing it. And it's our responsibility to push back. Look, I could go on and on and on in this, but we're going to come back to this. Uh, this is going to be the series. We're going to move into the disintegration of the black family nucleus. Uh, and we're going to uncover a lot of things. Some of it's going to be in this book. Some of it's going to be in uh, coming out of born in captivity. Uh, Psychopath Psychopathology is a legacy of slavery, which is my 19th book. But what we are going to have to do is be honest with ourselves. We're going to be honest with ourselves, something that we tend not to want to do. We're going to stop pretending we've arrived. We're going to have to stop pretending that we fit in. We're going to stop pretending that uh, everything's going. The socioeconomic reality for blacks is that we're worse off now than we were in 61. Home ownership hasn't improved. The, uh, the racial uh, wealth gap has widened, not, not closed. We have less and less political influence. We're getting little to nothing for anything that we do in the political arena. We're losing footing in the world of education as we move away from public education and the, private, the privatization of educational institutions, even at the elementary level. What does that mean for those who are still at the poverty line? We have a lot of work to do. And I'm challenging us to make it happen. Look, on that note, look, it's almost noon here where I'm at. Um, I've gone for nearly 50 minutes to this point. So I'm going to start to wind down. Look, as I said at the beginning of this, if you believe in the work we do, if you believe in what I've given you for the last 35 years, show some love, show some support. Support the work we do. At the Odyssey Project, whether it's Black Man Lead, whether it's Restoring Ghettos Forgotten Daughters, whether it's um, the Research Center, the Think Tank, uh, Program Development Implementation, Wraparound Services, Mental Health, and uh, Domestic Violence, and so much more. We need your support. Well, again, I thank you guys for allowing me to take your time. I hope that uh, this message resonates with you. I hope that you are getting something out of these series. But we can't sit idly by 
and just think that things are going to fix themselves. That's not how this thing is going to happen. So on that note, I'm going to challenge you uh, to become a part of the solution and stop being a part of the problem. For those who decide to support us, thank you. And on that note, I'm out of here. You guys have an unbelievable remainder of your day. Hello everybody, Dr. Rick Wallace here, dropping in with a little special announcement for those who have followed me for any stretch of time. You know, outside of the businesses that I run, like Myriad Business Solutions, the Visionetics Institute, Odyssey Media Group, I also do a great deal of work inside of the inner city communities uh, in Houston, Dallas, and other areas. Uh, I'm asking now as we push a fundraiser that you support what the Odyssey Project is doing in the inner cities, uh, especially with programs like Black Men Lead, which is a rite of passage uh, initiative, and Restoring Ghetto for, Ghetto's Forgotten Daughters, which is a program focused on helping young girls, but boys as well, suffering from childhood sexual abuse. Uh, rape, molestation, domestic abuse, uh, absentee fatherhood, and so many other things. Uh, the information will be in the box. Thank you. I'm free to be free.